2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Every summer, city officials, the police, and local residents brace for an increase in gun violence in Hartford. It's a cycle seen in cities across the nation. So far this year, there have been 25 gun homicides in the capital city. There were 35 total homicides last year, the highest in Hartford in 18 years, reports Hearst Connecticut. Behind those numbers are the families impacted and people committed to decreasing violence and helping city youth. Brother Carl Hardrick is one of them. He knows the city well, growing up in public housing in Bellevue Square, and working as a gang intervention specialist and anti-violence activist since the 1960s. His life's work is now part of a new institute in his name, The Brother Carl Hardrick Institute for Violence Prevention and Community Engagement is housed inside the YMCA on Albany Avenue. Brother Carl's goal is to train violence interrupters and interveners, people in the lives of youth who can help them and their families. I met up with Brother Carl last month at his institute. Brother Carl, so nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us today. pleasure is mine. So we're actually sitting inside the Wilson Gray YMCA Youth and Family Center. And you've had a long relationship with this building that now houses your Institute for Violence Prevention and Community Engagement. So tell us about your connection to this place.
1: My connection to this place was through Kevin Washington, who was the CEO of the YMCA Downtown. Originally, we were uh, connected with the Y and we were working at what we call the substation, which is up there on Main Street, I mean, on Alley the Avenue, and we would run programs out of there. But in doing that, we would take kids to the Y. So, as we had gang problems, we would take one group from that court, another group from the Avenue, 40 and 40 and we bring them up to Camp Woodstock. And we found out by doing that, we reduced violence to about 20%, because now they're engaged, getting them out of community. So when they talked about building the Y, I said, Kevin, we need a Y down down on, on, on the avenue. I said, because every time we go to Camp Woodstock, the kids have these great ideas of coming together, but they don't have a building to go to. Yeah, they have the church, but if you're going to build a Y, we suggest that you build on Albany Avenue. So that's part of my connection, lobbying for it, to be here.
2: And how long has this YMCA been on Albany Ave? That's about 11 years. Tell me about the people that, that come through here.
1: Well, originally, <clears throat> see the Y has a, a different policy when it comes to how they run their programs. Well, we're, the, we're urban wise, And I remember talking to the board, one of the board of directors, and he said to me, he said, Brother Kyle, we don't want to depend on other wise." Kevin feeling was that the suburban wise, Glastonbury wise, the uh, Vernon wise. The other wives that had a large money should give to the urban Y, and he said, as being a board member, that we should be able to raise our own funds. So what he stated was that in order for this Y to function independently of the Y downtown, that we had to have two thousand members paying $62 a month. And my question to him was, how are we going to get that? So he said, we're going to go to the suburban churches, the urban churches, we're going to go to the business community, we're going to go to Edna and statewide. So we began to do that. And for the first three years, it worked out fine. But if we, as you left good board members that would go, and get the money that had the contact as new board members came in they didn't have that association with those industries so it kind of fell a little bit so it became a question is with the urban Y the Y was really built for this community but they couldn't afford that so we set up a policy we said okay, let's do it this way well, when a person comes in We all asked them, what can you afford? $35 a month, $20 a month, or $10 a month? And everybody thought, well, everybody's going to leave to $10. Most of the people leave to $25, and the wife was packed. It was like every room. This used to be the daycare, child watch. It was just packed. So we had our ups and downs, but we were still leaning in terms of getting members or gang members down. Uh, Began to, fights broke out, we had to break it up. It broke out in the back, we would break it up. And people thought, they knew we were serious. You can come in here, but it's certain amount of respect that you have to have. And we got that by engaging with the people that came here.
2: So this is an important community center, and now it's housing your institute uh, to help prevent violence and to increase community engagement. So what does it mean for you to have your institute here at the Y?
1: Well, I said, if we're gonna deal with crime, we need to deal with it where it is. We don't need to build West Hartford, and the Y is an ideal place. You have several fights back there and there's been homicides up here. This has been homicides up the street. So we were able to uh, say, okay, you know, let's go where it is and let's begin to change the outlook of the city. Let's engage people. Because with kids, you got this. You got, on this hand, you got 20%. 20% of young people, they're gonna do drive-by's, and don't care what you say or what you do. Over here, you have another 20%. They're gonna to go to school, they're gonna be down. But they go to school, they're gonna work. It's that 60% in the middle that you wanna get. Cause you don't wanna to lean to the negative. You wanna get them to the positive. And hopefully, you'll go at everybody 10% over. So that was the key of having it here. Because they weren't gonna go outside. So you had to go where the action was, where the crime was. You can't run from it, nor can you move it, because when you move it, it's somebody else's problem. So
2: when people come to the Institute, who are the people that you're encouraging to be part of
1: this work? Well, we're looking for how do you stop violence? How do you stop a young person from killing them? Somebody knows. So what we need is engagers, engages young people in the street, contacting other young people. Most of the things you have is on social media. Okay, so you can see it up there, and eventually it hits the street. And you might not pay attention, but next thing you know, three people died over it. So you need that engagement. Who the leaders out there? Who are the people you can talk to? Who are the families you can talk to? How do you change that behavior? Now, the early stages of dealing with violence would happen in the street and then it would go into the schools. So we had a contact with Stringer at Weaver. And every time something happened, we called Stringer on a Sunday, we said, look, You got two groups up there, there's been a shootout, you need to pull bus 29 and 30 aside. So he would be set up when they came in and he would pull them aside and begin to mediate the conflict in there. We can go up there and mediate it as well. That helped a lot. What's happening today, everything is coming out of the school. So the community is blindsided because the kids are taking pictures. Folks are coming up, they're seeing it. It's on Facebook. And we're not getting that information from the teachers in terms of kids that are mentally, need help, after school programs, engaging. So that's the difference we're seeing from the 80s, 90s, 2000, up to this point. We don't have enough young people, and that's part of the training. How do we train somebody for that? How do we say what works and why? What do you need to do? So not only could we find out what's happening in school, we could trace them after school.
2: So there's a lot of mediation that you've been involved in But how did you get involved in this work, Brother Carl? I know you're born and raised in Hartford. Tell us about why this has become your
1: life's work. I think it starts with me being in a big family growing up in Bellevue Square, watching families that were very poor. Um, There was 12 of us, one passed, so 11. As poor as we were, we were As you learn in life, we were very rich because we looked out for each other. So that was the whole neighborhood. But, you know, in public housing, it was temporarily housing. So those individual parents, Mr. Jones, Mr. McBride, all those big families, whenever you're doing something wrong, they were part of your extended family. And we had a very big extended family in the project kids don't have that today. They don't have an extended family. They don't have people, if they mothers on drugs, or they're doing something wrong, they don't have anyone correcting them and working at S.A.N., South Island Naval Development, in Bellevue Square. And I was asking the kids, how come you don't get in so much trouble? And they said, we don't have anybody to stop us. When we go on something to do something wrong, we don't have everybody saying, look, go home. You're not here anymore. You, we don't have anybody. So we just keep on, keep going until we get jammed up. So once you have that connection in the community and you have that engagement, people believe in you can stop them, you can talk to them, go home. And they'll go home because they believe in you.
2: They believe in you, Brother Carl, but you know, a lot of people may not want to be involved in this kind of work. What is it about you, though, that, that made you gravitate towards wanting to help your community? I guess
1: it looks, it, we look at how Hoffa grew up, okay? There's a lot of things that we were exposed to that kids want. For example, Malcolm X. Malcolm X used to walk through the project. Martin Luther King, we knew them. So we, lo- we looked at the movement, the time, and what was happening around that time. You know what I mean? You didn't have, then you had the Black Panther Party. Black Panther Party came together to support the killmen, to run the drugs out of the community, to start the after-school programs, the lunch programs. So there was always activities that someone was engaging us in that were positive and when we looked at the gang problem, how did the gang come about? Because it was a breakdown of the family and kids created their own families and it became very negative.
2: You said that you came from a big family. Sure. Who was your
1: mentor? Oh, my mother, my father certainly kept me in check, but then you had Miss. Mr. Smith, Uh, you had uh, kids that were in charge of the program, you had um, Mr. Jones, you had uh, Muriel Johnson, you know, you had Isabel Blake. As you began to work with people that were fighting for even the school system to become better, or they were fighting for welfare that wasn't fair. They were fighting for it. So these were people that I looked at and began to join their movement to help them. So we were constantly doing something. Me, and Billy, we were constantly into looking at the community, how can we better it? Because we thought that that's what the people was doing for us, Bobby Knights, the basketball player who played on the gold trotters, the recreation programs that they had at that time, that you had people used to come to the project, used to be a thousand people to watch them play. And most of the players were from the project. So you had people you were looking up to that was going somewhere or doing something positive.
2: You know, earlier when you talked about, you know, the work of this institute and the importance of getting young people engaged as well, who else do you want to encourage to take some of the classes that your institute will offer to help with that violence uh,
1: intervention? We'll take them from Yale and we'll take them from the jail. You can't, if you're going to study crime, you have to study those that have committed those that are serious, that made mistakes, have them. Then you have the Yale folks that can do the research on it. Then you have the teaching, this education system. is very, very important. Because if you're gonna get out of poverty, 90% of it's gonna be education. So how do we fight to see that the kids need? For example, the state of Connecticut, There's been a lot of car stealers. They want to do a regionalization. Hartford, Bloomfield, East Windsor, South Windsor, Glastonbury, West Hartford. They want to come together and they want to build a $3 million situation to lock kids up for stealing the cars. But we're saying, why would you want to do that? That's not going to solve the problem. It's going to make the problem worse. You're going to invest in that, and you're not willing to give teachers more money, put more money in the education system, but you will invest in locking them up. You need to look at why they're doing what they're doing and study that, and that's what the Institute looks at. Okay. Because you're going to pay in the long end, on the back end. When they commit serious crimes, they got to go into the juvenile and they're there, what out almost half a million dollars, $400,000 to lock a kid up. So you're going to spend that kind of money. The question is, how do we do prevention? Right. And that's where the Institute is, looking at prevention so it don't get to that point. Right. How do we get to the kids that are still in the cars? You know, what is it that we need to do the basketball program? Well, we got to go with kids on. If they're in the basketball programs, they're doing AAU, which is great. But the difference is with the Institute, looking at them, how do we train them to what happens when you win the game, when you get off the court, what are you doing? What do your future look like? So we haven't, we haven't done a great job in that. And that's where that 60% is. It's locked in. It can go this way or it can go that way. Right. We want to pull it this way. Uh,
2: when we talk about violence intervention, you know, there's been a lot of attention, especially when we, th- we talk about gun violence. And so we hear from lawmakers and, and other policymakers about the importance of changing laws. But I'm wondering if you can talk about how, what the confirmation, or conversation rather should be in terms of reducing crime? Because you had mentioned, you know, there's a cycle that goes on in neighborhoods where people are experiencing violence. And so if we're only focusing on changing laws, are we missing the the important part of providing programs for
1: people? Yeah, I think that's true. Because look at gun violence in urban cities. 90% of the guns people get in what we call informal violence. So when you take something away up here, you created something down here. And there's no way you can trace it. So the question is, how do we look at what drives them to that point where they have to have a gun, where they have to kill? People have learned to hate, and the question is, how do we teach them to love? So that's part of the solution. For example, we set up the hospital base. When someone gets shot, we're going to the hospital. We look at what happens. We look at the family how they're suffering. What are their needs? Could it have been prevention? Who did it? Is it going to be retaliation? All those things we look at. We just think that more people the more you engage the community in positive activities, the better off you are. You know, we got to go where they are, and we have to start early. You know, we have to begin to talk about violence at eight years old, and don't wait till they get 15, or 19, or 20. We start low, and that's where you're going to cut it off at. It's like any system, any basketball, you groom those here to be ready to go to UConn so they can win the championship. But you don't take them out of high school, expect them to win. It's not gonna happen. So we have to look at that. We have to look at the family. What are the family needs? What do moms, so we have to train her or him or grandpa, whoever's running the house. What kind of support you need? And if your kid is in trouble and you see things, then call us. That's what the interrupters do. If you have a point where, you know, I got a call and kids is just bugging out, I need help. Parents are calling for help, but they're not getting it because we don't have the people out there. And that's what we hope to do when you call for help. someone will be there for you. Now most of my association comes from picking kids up that need a ride. Because of our connection, there's always a conversation about what you're doing. I don't even have to say that. I remember a situation where a young lady grew up in Hawaii, good basketball player, went to St. Joe's. So I was taking one lady, the other young girl, she's about 17, to get a job. And she said, you need to talk to so-and-so, so-and-so. I said, why? She said, because they're doing some bad stuff. You know, they're selling drugs. And they're not really selling drugs. They're selling forced drugs to people. I said, you kidding me. She said, no. I said, well, I'm going to call them. Well, she happened to call me the next day, that, that individual. And when I asked her what was happening and why she was doing it, she was like stunned. Who told you? I said, well, never mind. Understand, you're not doing the right thing out there. So she said, well, I said, how come you, you left school? She said, yeah. I said, how come you're in the street selling drugs? She said, because I wanted to make some money. So I said, look, For what I can see, you need to get out of town because there's some people talking about getting you. You done sold them some bad drugs. And she said, well, I really need a job. So she went to court, she had a court case. Two days later, I get a call and she's been shot on Street. her and a friend. She's 19 years old, that one was 16. And, you know, it hurt so bad because I knew what was going to happen before it happened. I just didn't have the resources to get out that day because I said, you got to get out of town. So that's one of the things we know that works. When you have a person, and we haven't set this up, we're looking at it, that they need to change their environment. It reminds me of a, fellow, a friend of mine that used to get drunk all the time and then he would get sober, good education, was an engineer, graduated, three kids, lovely wife, but every time he would get sober, he'd be sober and then he'd get drunk and then I asked his wife, well, how's he doing? He's back on it again. He back in the street. So I see him eight months later. I said, you all right? He said, yeah. And so he says to me, he said, you know what I found out? You know my main boy, Reggie? That's my main man. And every time I would go get Reggie to get him into the program, he would get me high before I can get him sober. So I stay away from Reggie. And that's the way it is in the community that some people have to stay away from the individuals in the community
2: you're here in hartford luminary brother carl hardrick where we live as we talk about his new institute for violence prevention and community engagement brother carl has been working on the grassroots level in hartford for decades to help decrease gun violence and reach those in crisis city youth and their families coming up more of my conversation with brother carl including his reflections when gun violence impacted his family. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel, back after a short break. You can join us, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
3: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center with a special ECMO on-the-go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go
1: to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolbethanchel. My guest today is Brother Carl Hardrick, a lifelong Hartford resident who's been a gang intervention specialist and anti-violence activist since the 1960s. Albany Avenue is the epicenter of the community he serves, from giving rides to young people to helping them access programming at the Wilson Gray YMCA. He's known as a mediator, a person youth can reach out to when in crisis, or the person a worried parent calls when they need help. His life's work has been devoted to preventing gun violence. Yet gun violence has impacted Brother Carl's family, too. Last summer, he lost his grandson, Mackay Buckley, when he was just 19 years old. I asked Brother Carl about Mackay when I met up with him last month inside his new Institute for Violence Prevention and Community Engagement.
1: Mackay, he was Every place I went from the time he was nine years old, Camp Woodstock, he was around, grew up in this Y here. You know, he's around everybody, he knew everybody. He knew every uh, Latin King, he knew every Los Alito. he knew every Jamaican, he knew everybody. So he was the type of kid he can go anywhere. But it wasn't so much in him, but it's who he surrounded himself with. When he grew up, from the time he grew up, my conversation was up here. When he got 15, 14, mine was kind of like in the middle. His was up there. Great football player. Um, Trying to figure out to this day what happened. I know, kind of know what happened. He thought that he can deal with the people he was dealing with. They were football players, they were friends of his. So he knew everybody. And I guess he turned his back, was trying to exchange a gun. And I said, guy, why do you need a gun? You need to get your behind up in school. He was supposed to be up in Penn State playing football. But Spencer, who wanted to recruit him, left Penn State and went to join the NFL. And what happened was, coaches bring their own people in. So they were telling him, well, Makai, you gotta do that. I said, Makai, just go. I said, that's what you gotta do, you gotta do. Well, he was stuck. on, I'm a D1 ball player, which he was. But I'm saying, you know, during the pandemic. So he went to AIC. Springfield. Yeah, right. Doing well there, but then he would go to class, he had to come home. He'd go back to class, he'd go back, stay home another three weeks. He'd go back another two days. And he's dealing with his friends, and I said, Mekai, why are you talking to them? They're not, you know, he said, oh, well, Grandpa grew up in a sandbox with him. I said, but y'all in two different lanes. He's in that negative lane. I know you played Paul with him. You're in the positive one. So he said, Well, Grandpa, you don't know everything. I said, But I know a lot of things that can help you. So we always had that argument, you know, like, Grandpa, let me fall and I can pick myself up. You know, I man, I need to pick myself up. You know, I said, Well, why would you fall if you didn't? Know? Why would I let you fall? Why would you fall just to be falling? So he just got hooked up with some bad people. And it started with his friend getting shot 70 times. And he said, well, i got to get a gun. I mean, that's what he was saying to other people. So, you know, it's trying to exchange a the gun. Then they were trying to rob him, and he jerked on him and they were scared, and as he turned his back, they shot I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, so it was devastating to everybody. You know, everybody that knew Makai knew he wasn't about that life. He knew about it, but he wasn't about it. <clears throat> and that's the thing we have to be careful of in the Institute. We can't take everybody that commit crime we have to balance that out with kids that one of the young ladies told me, I said, Well we don't get no attention. What do we have to do, break a window to get you guys to say, we need help too. You know? So you have to kind of balance it out. You know what I mean? Because they can easily lean that way. They'll fall in there. Positive in the middle and can slip over to the negative. There's
2: a reminder inside the YMCA's gymnasium about those lost to gun violence. Glenn Malden is the Y's sports and recreation director. He points to the banners hanging on the gymnasium wall.
3: Well, it starts with this banner, which is um, the young man name was Keon. One of the first kids in our building lost to gun violence. And that's how. Well, how came up with the idea of Shoe Hoops, Not Guns, summer program. Um, So this has been going on since 2015. Um, And then consequently, Brother Kyle's grandson got killed last year. And um, it's not a great way to memorialize, but it's factual. So just, just a reminder of uh, what we don't want to happen you know, but we also want to not forget our kids. So um, hopefully we don't put any more banners up and we keep the league going. Um, but yeah, it's just to, re- to keep us, or remind us of our kids that we lost mm-hmm. and, um, and to keep hope alive and keep things going on and try to curb gun violence as much as possible.
2: Brother Carl believes sports are necessary to keep kids busy and out of trouble. I asked him about the programs he'd like to see the city help support, noting that Hartford is one municipality that does not fund kids' sports leagues.
1: Well, that's part of the problem. Because when you take something away from somebody, you've got to replace it with something. Sports can do that. But then you've got to have make sure the person that's coaching, that they mind is that. You know what I mean? Then you have to look at the mental illness in the community then you can deal with that. So sports, whether it's double-dodge, whatever it might be, and that's where that early stage come in, from age to seven, all the way up, because they're constantly doing something and keeping them engaged. And that's what the why is here from. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to look at that <clears throat> because we know that's important. Jobs are important, after-school program, exposing them, getting them out of the community. Bring them to New York, bring them to Philly, places that they've never been before.
2: The Wise Summer Basketball League aims to fill part of that need. Glenn Malden describes the program for us.
3: The Summer Basketball League starts the Saturday after the Fourth of July, and it goes to the middle of August. Um, this year, the age, the grades are from third grade up to ninth grade. Traditionally, it's been Sixth grade to 12th grade, but I found a need to go younger. And with the new Boys and Girls Club opening up on the south end, there's no need for us to compete. So we allow, we let the older kids go there, we go younger. Now I got more parents in the building, and I mean, you can come over any Saturday. So um, it started off with city, we have 18 cities, two states over 300 kids every year. And it's great and it's free. You know?
2: And it gives them something to do in the it summer. It gives
3: them something to do in the summer. Keeping them out of trouble for at least eight hours. Yeah. You know, it's the best I can do for now.
2: Can I ask how do the young people respond to Brother Carl? Oh, they
3: love Brother Carl. Brother Carl, Brother Carl. Again, there's only one Brother Carl. And everybody can't be or do what Brother Carl does. Mm-hmm. It's just not gonna happen. You know, but the, the community and the kids love him. Mm-hmm. They love him. They I've, love him too much. I've read Not that. Not too much, but they love
1: him.
2: I've read that people describe him as a Hartford legend.
3: Yeah, it goes back since the 60s. I remember when I was a young man. You know, we mm-hmm. used to play in what we call over 30 year basketball league at Quirk Middle. So, um, yeah, BC's wow. been around for a long time. <laughs> and I hope he stays around for a lot longer.
2: Summer basketball is a big draw, but Brother Carl is busy enrolling people in his anti-violence prevention classes at his institute. More classes are upcoming in the weeks ahead.
1: We're looking at the leaders. I mean we know people we're getting all kinds of letters, people writing us from jail. And we're looking at people that we know that have been down that road but have changed. They in business, you know, the entrepreneurs, but they have a list of people that they deal with, those challenging individuals. Because there might be people I don't know, where I got a young lady that does braiding. Everybody goes to her, but we need her because if we can train her in the process of doing here, she can talk to a lot of young people or she can find out who needs help and get that back to us. So we're looking for that. We're looking for those individuals even though they might have been in jail but they still got respect in the community that can make a difference in terms of going there and stopping stuff or begin to say look you need to do this with this group because there's always somebody looking up to somebody else right now most of the kids you see in the community are not most of them a lot of are looking up to the negative. So, you know, how do you do that? So we have to create a more economic job market because they're going to go where the money is, but they really don't want to go to jail, but we're not approaching them.
2: That was Brother Carl Hardrick speaking to us from the Wilson Gray YMCA on Albany Avenue in Hartford. Just down the hall from the gymnasium is Brother Carl's Institute for Violence Prevention and Community Engagement. You can learn more at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. After the break, we continue talking about community efforts to decrease gun violence. We hear from Jacqueline Santiago Nazario, CEO of the Compass Youth Collaborative. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're focused today on the people and nonprofits that are working to help reduce violence in the city of Hartford. Joining us now on Zoom is Jacqueline Santiago Nazario, CEO of Compass Youth Collaborative. Jackie, welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: We heard from Brother Carl, who spoke about the importance of meeting basic needs first when we talk about uh, reducing crime and violence before any sort of crisis intervention. Jackie, um, he gave, told us the story about a young person that said, what do I have to do, break a window to get attention? You co-authored an op-ed in the Connecticut Mirror, a headline, To End Gun Violence, We Need to Address Poverty. So can you talk about this kind of dichotomy?
0: Yes, violence is really a, a disease and it's contagious. It spreads from person to person. And it is. it has its roots in systems issues like poverty. And so we find that many times youth that are struggling and families that are struggling to live in a day-to-day life and meet their basic needs, food, um, shelter, often have a continuous um, pull on their emotions and their ability to deal with the stress. And so when you have these kinds of constant issues c- pulling at you, it's harder to be able to have the capacity to deal well with issues when they arise. And so it is about making sure that those basic needs are met. We often at peace at Compass Peace Builders, we always have, uh, basic needs ready for kids. In fact, that's how we um, establish a connection with them. We initially bring them to get food, or we make sure that they have their school uniforms or clothes in general, uh, because the kids need to know that we care before they're interested in knowing what we know.
2: Jackie, you've been doing this work for some time. Uh, we know, uh, the, you know, the greater public—they'll uh, see a headline related to, to gun violence in Hartford, and they may think nothing is changing. But I want you, uh, you know, to talk more about that—that that sentiment. Um, what is changing uh, to help these young people that people may not know about?
0: There are many changes in our, in our community. I think Hartford is doing a great job of making sure that we're connecting community agencies. I think there was a point in time where we all did our work very separately, um, and now there is an opportunity for us to engage and really connect the dots so that we have a network of supports for kids that, so that they don't fall through the cracks. In addition, uh, you know, Mayor Luke Bronin has established a group that meets with all of the providers around the community working with youth that are at risk, and we are at that table. And we are responding to incidences of violence as they occur and sharing information real time uh, so that we can address the impacts of violence right when they happen. So if a person is, is uh, shot or stabbed, we are responding not only to the hospital with a group of people, we're following up at home and consistently doing that and sharing information back. There are so many more resources and we've learned so much more from the incidences of violence that have occurred that we are now better coordinated. Uh, We even have a difference, I believe, in the perspective of law enforcement where they know that they can't arrest their way out of this problem. And so there have been instances where they call us to make sure that we're in the community, uh, making sure that we're uh, canvassing the community and sharing the message of peace so that when kids see us, they have a great time and that the community is safe rather than calling and after the fact. And getting them arrested—that's not going to solve the
2: problem. Mm. Uh, when you reference uh, police understanding they can't arrest their way out of this problem, is that solely when we talk about the Hartford police? And when we think about how uh, residents in, in suburbs uh, in our state uh, that may see uh, you know Hartford youth uh, come into their community, you know they think that is the solution. And so, tell us why that's that in your perspective, you know that's not the the way that we're going to solve these issues.
0: To me, it's the saddest sentiment when we uh, will not invest in educating our youth, Uh, we won't invest in addressing the root causes of mental health issues, or even investing in parks that have, there's data to um, support the fact that having clean, open recreational spaces helps reduce incidences of violence, that we won't invest in all of the things that create a better quality of life for people uh, and instead look to incarcerate youth uh, where there is not the level of learning and development i mean when you consider the fact that their brains are not developed till age 25 what we're doing is increasing the level of trauma increasing the negative experiences that they're uh, having in their life and then making it harder for them to gain a life or gainful employment when they leave the system. Uh, it's costs so much more uh, to incarcerate a youth, uh, 60,000 up to 200,000 we've heard in some instances uh, versus 10 or $11,000 a year to be a part of a compass program or other programs throughout the city. So it's really imperative that we uh, look to address the long-term impacts of this and how and address the root issues rather than having a quick fix that will only have the problem return later, a few years Mm -hmm. later in life.
2: You mentioned trauma, I understand uh, through Compass uh, you've surveyed members and this statistic I thought was uh, worth noting. Uh, you shared that nearly nine out of 10 of the almost 200 young people involved in the program have lost a loved one to gun violence. And so when we think about how that trauma manifests, uh, Jackie, and the work that Compass is doing to break that cycle.
0: It's sad when you think about the fact that nine out of 10 um, youth have had a close family member uh, or friend die to gun violence. Uh, It shows them that um, that they're in peril, you know. When you think about the 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 brain and how it develops, you know, they're in a constant state of fight or flight, thinking that their life could be taken at any moment, um, and wondering whether or not they should fight to have a good education or a good quality of life, um, or even begin to think that this is a normal way of life. I hear that so much from kids. Like this is normal, and it shouldn't be. Uh, when you think about the fact that um, 14% of the youth that we work with have been shot, when the CDC estimates that about 5% of the U.S. population has been shot before, or that um, some of them have been victims, uh, or gunshot victims several times over, uh, it really does uh, change their perspective on what they should live for or the respect for other human life because they are thinking that this is normal. they living in a situation where it's if I got to get them first before they get me, and that is not normal. We've got to teach these kids that, about love and peace and healing, and that's what Compass is doing. With our peace builders, they are not only building these intentional relationships with youth, they are making sure that their basic needs are met, and that we are connecting them to more um, resources for mental health, um, to connection back to school connection to work, um, and teaching them those cognitive behavioral skills that they need in order to uh, pause and think before they take action.
2: When we look at some of the the violence seen this summer in Hartford, uh, Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin said at a recent press conference, these incidents were, quote, targeted back and forth, part of a retaliatory cycle. Would you characterize it similarly?
0: I would. I think that uh, we have gotten to a place, and I think it's gotten worse with COVID, but we've gotten to a place where we just don't know how to Talk things through, how to de escalate a situation, how to uh, manage the emotions that come with either something on social media or an, an issue that they have um, person to person. And it ends up with uh, a backlash, a retaliation. Uh, and really, the peace builders are also working to make sure that there is somebody there that's helping them to navigate these difficult situations and create a more uh, more understanding. But um, it can get difficult when people can't self-regulate and haven't learned that skill. Mm-hmm.
2: You've been hearing Jacqueline Santiago Nazario here on Where We Live, CEO of Compass Youth Collaborative. We'll share a link to the op-ed you wrote for the Connecticut Mirror. Jackie, thank you so much for your time on the show.
0: Thank you, Lucille, so we appreciate it.
2: I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. A special thanks to Joe Amon. We'll be back tomorrow.